بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد من point number ten حي لا يموت قيوم لا ينام alive he never dies all sustaining he never sleeps uh, there's a number of questions that we've received over the first few points and the first session Responses to some of them are going to come in the course of the discussion here. Uh, Imam Taha will respond to some of those himself. And at the end of this session, inshallah, we'll try to take care of all of the other questions as well. Hayyun. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the hay because he has hayat. Hayat means life. He's alive because he has life. The life of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is very, very unique in the sense that Though we have life to live, but there's a beginning to it, there's an end to it. And the life of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is eternal. It's an essential attribute of His. It's an attribute of His which has always been existent. It's a very unique form of life. And it's actually what all the other attributes logically need to depend on as well for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is alive. He never dies. That's a reiteration of some of the things that we've read before. All-sustaining, he never sleeps. He's also the all-sustaining. So, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created Adam alayhi salam, he then extracted the entire progeny of Adam alayhi salam from his back, and he manifested himself, and he addressed them saying, Alastu bi rabbikum ant your lord. They recognized him. They were pure. They'd just been created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They recognized him and said, Bala, of course you are. There was no reason for any form of doubt. So children never question about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because they're from that natural realm. They still are fresh with the natural faith that they've been born with. See the hadith of the Prophet which is oft quoted, That every child is born on the fitrah. Many people translate that as every child is born in Islam. It's not necessarily a very accurate translation. It works in a sense, but it's not very accurate. Because when we talk about Islam, we're talking about acquired faith. Once a person matures and becomes adult, it's necessary for them to adopt the faith and have a conscious form of belief in the faith. If a person dies before becoming an adult, then they've got salvation according to the majority of scholars, especially children of Muslims, there's less difference of opinion about that than there is of children of non-Muslims who die in infancy or during childhood. What the hadith means is that every child is born on the fitrah. Now we're going to translate fitrah as the natural faith. It's this natural propensity, knowing that we've been created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, knowing our creator. Now the parents then either take them away from that or reiterate that. When a person matures, then they take on acquired faith. So, there's a natural faith that we're speaking about. That is the knowledge that we have recognized Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and taken this covenant from Him when He asked, aren't I your Lord? And that's very clear. So now, even when you ask the people who called on to other gods, like in the time of the Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses them and says to the Prophet وَلَئِنْ سَأَلْدَهُمْ مَنْ خَلَقَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ لَيَقُولُنَّ اللَّهِ That if you were to ask them who created the heavens and the earth, they would certainly say Allah. That's something that 
they believed. If you ask even those who reject Allah, when they get to the middle of an ocean or something and the waves start to roll up, or they're in the air, in an aeroplane and there's turbulence, the natural self, the self will call out to its creator, by whichever direction the intellect may take it. I was sitting with this particular individual, the attendant, in a flight, sitting at the front, he was sitting facing the passengers. And I just got talking to him and he said he doesn't really believe in any God or anything like that. And I just decided to ask him, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, that when they're in the middle of the ocean and the waves start to roll and you know they think it's the last moments and they call out to Allah, and they forget when they get back. I asked him, I said, have you ever been in a very turbulent situation? And he explained that there was one time when they were in great turbulence, experiencing a lot of turbulence. I said, what happened at that time? And he thought back and he said, you know what? I called out to a higher being. I called out to, must be God. What it is, is that the natural self, because it's created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it recognizes Allah. Intellectually, we just, people who are atheists and so on, they cover that up by taking their minds in a different direction. I remember once we had a program in the masjid, an open house, a lot of non-Muslims were invited, and one person comes up afterwards, you know, we'd spoken about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, God Almighty and everything. He comes up after the program and he said, you know, I really want to understand God, but I just can't make myself do that. I mean, he's fighting with himself based on the studies that he'd done or the influence that he'd received growing up which told him to denounce Allah, his natural self was rebelling. So when he got some inspiration by listening to the talk about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his natural self is calling out that he wants to believe in him and trying to overcome the intellectual challenges having of not believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's a lot of people in this kind of dilemma. So they would just say, Allah." The pagans, they would just say that these are just our intercessors, our intermediaries to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the prophets never forced their people to say Allahu Mawjudun. That was not necessarily the call. The call was always Allahu Wahidun. That Allah is one. It's not Allahu Mawjudun because that's something that is such an essential belief or such a natural reality. So La Yamut Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not die. Qayyumun. Qayyumun means Qa'imun bi nafsihi wa dhatihi. Which means that his self subsisting. He's standing by himself, standing in a metaphorical sense. He's alive by himself. He acts by himself. He doesn't need any external assistance or help. He doesn't need any support. He doesn't need any enhancement from anywhere. He is as he's always been and he's self-subsisting. Basically, this refers to Allah's independence. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's might and greatness. That he doesn't need anything to make him who he is. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is well beyond that. In fact, he's the one who, one is he self-subsisting, the other one is that he's the one who nurtures everybody else and everybody else subsists through him. That's an extended meaning of the word qayyum. So he protects them, he nurtures them, and he guides them. And this is all then emphasized by the fact that he never sleeps which means that he's always in control. The human relationship with sleep is that when a person is asleep, there's a lot of things that happen. A person is not in their senses at that time. They begin to see things without their control when they see their dreams. Some people speak in their sleep, things that they wouldn't say when they're outside of sleep. Sleep is like the, the sister of death. 
That's why we make the du'as accordingly like that. When we get up in the morning, we say, All praise to Allah who gave us life after death. Ahyana ba'dama amatana. Alhamdulillah ladhi ahyana ba'dama amatana. Wa ilayhim nushur. And to him is the return. So that's sleep. Sleep is a weakness. Sleep is the weak point. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never sleeps. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an afa in a sense for somebody who wants to be very efficient. People are always trying to find ways of not sleeping. Red Bull, caffeine tablets, and all sorts of other stuff. See, the thing is, sometimes you eat and then you suddenly start feeling sleepy. It's the gases that are rising in the body and that create this lulling effect. There's a mechanism. You don't just sleep. There's a mechanism. There's something that happens by which you sleep. There's something that goes on in the body. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is beyond all of these things. Allah is beyond that. He is Hayyul Qayyum. He is always alive and He is self-subsisting. There's no weakness. There's no failing. Point number 11. Khaliqun bila hajatin, razikun bila ma'unatin. This is to further emphasize some of the points made before that He is well in control of everything. Now specifically speaking about creation. He is a creator without any need to create and a provider without any stores of provision. This is the translation done here. Khaliqun, he is the creator of all creation without any need for them. He didn't really need to create us. This is something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided to do and he did it. There's various things that are related, created creation so that I could be recognized. Not that he needed to be, just something he wanted to do. Allah knows best why he did it. Again, we can't impute things onto Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the, but the point is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us without any need for creating us. He didn't need to be worshipped. He was already glorious. It doesn't make him any more glorious by being worshipped. He did that out of the mercy that he had for mankind so that he could put them in paradise. It's just like universities and colleges and schools are established to educate people and to guide them, to illuminate them, to make them better individuals and to make them successful. That's the goal of any university. The unfortunate reality though is that the human beings are weak. There are good and evil forces around us. There are attractions to good and there's attraction to evil. There's incitement to evil as well. Allah wants everybody to be successful. But the human fails. Some humans fail and they don't succeed. Just like everybody that goes to university doesn't necessarily succeed because they don't either try hard enough or they're just in the wrong place. They're just not right for that particular position. With Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He created in everybody the ability to choose right or wrong. And some people just decide to take it the other way around. So this place was created so that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could shower His mercy onto mankind. That's one of the wisdoms. There's some who like to take that and there's some who waste that opportunity. They waste that opportunity and they get to the wrong place in the hereafter. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is also the provider without there being any burden. See, when we're talking about providing, when you talk about the government providing, national health or whatever it may be, right, family credit or family allowance or whatever, you know, the various names that you have, there's always a budget, there's always a source for these things, and that needs to be sufficient, there needs to be enough resources to pass them around. When a father provides for the children, 
Again, there needs to be an income, there needs to be resources. So when you think about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who has created everybody and He's sustaining them, rizq, tarziq means to sustain, alright, to give them and nurture them and bring them up, right, to, to give them sustenance in order to bring them up. You think, where's that supply coming from? Is there enough of a supply? Just go on a bit of a tangent. Contraception, the muftis say, is makru to use in general. It's permissible to use for particular valid reasons like good tarbiyah of the children, space them out enough, etc., etc., so it doesn't become a bit overwhelming. One thing which is not permissible though is to use contraception because you fear that you will not be able to provide for the children. Because that's a responsibility that Allah is the razik, Allah is the provider. And that's something, if He's going to allow somebody to come into the world, then he's going to provide for them. And he's in charge of that. Yes, in his wisdom, sometimes some people don't get and they do perish. And there is droughts in the world, there is poverty in the world. But that's all part of the challenge of this world. So he does this, he provides without any assistance from anybody, without it being a burden on him. Bila ma'unatin, without it being a burden. And the translation here says, without any stores of provision. So it's not like a store, which means it would diminish. It's something that he's able to do without there being any store of provision. Inshallah, this is really refining our understanding of our Creator. It, it helps us to redefine our Tawheed when we now really understand what Tawheed means and how great is this Creator who is completely independent of everything. Mumitun bila makhafatin, ba'ithun bila mashakatin. Now, if you read this, he seizes life without fear and resurrects without effort. Now, you can see how this is responding to weaknesses in the human being and how that may be imputed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he's clarifying these points again. When you take somebody's life, sometimes there's an element of fear. Whether you'll be caught, whether you'll be done this way or that way. Allah sees his life at its time when he wants to do it without any fear of anybody. He resurrects without effort, which means that the same life that will be taken everybody's life that will be taken, everybody will die before the Day of Judgment. They'll be resurrected and that will happen very easily. It's a great surprise that people don't question the initial creation of things. I'm talking about in history, the people of Makkah, when that particular individual came to Prophet ﷺ, took two bones, old bones, and then he scraped them together until they became powder. And he said that, are you saying that Allah is going to resurrect this? Logically speaking, to bring somebody from nothing into existence seems to be a more difficult task than to actually just resurrect somebody that's already lived a life and had a body and form. Why is it that they question the second form and not the first? The first is from experience. It's something they have experience with. The second one they don't yet have experience. But their comprehension doesn't allow them to also understand that. And the absence of tawfiq is what leads them to question the resurrection. So, he's saying it very clearly here, that he resurrects without effort. So he gives them death when it's their time for death, that he has decided for them. Now there was a question that was asked, is that, did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have all of these attributes even before he created them? So was he qayyum before even having anybody to look after and to sustain? To phrase it in another way, has Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for example, been the creator and the provider even before there was a creation and before there was anybody to sustain and provide for? 
Yes, Imam Tahawi is going to reiterate this point again and again in various different ways. Imam Abu Hanifa does the same because that's such an essential point. To dispel this notion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't have certain attributes and then he developed them later on he was able to create. You know, again, this comes from this whole human weakness of people growing up through infancy and then suddenly developing the ability to speak and then the ability to do things, to walk and to talk, etc., etc. Allah provides certain basic capabilities like eating. You know, otherwise the baby would take the breast in the mouth and not drink. But this is a natural thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to the child. It's not something that came through evolution. It's something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the human being with that ability. But slowly, slowly, they begin to learn to walk and to speak and they study things, they learn things. Their attributes, the attributes of the human being of knowledge and of other things, sight, a baby of a week or two weeks, even up to three weeks, can't really see you. It's a blurry thing. You experience this with children. They can't really see you. When they smile, it's just a gesture on their face. They're not necessarily smiling at something. These are just various facial expressions that they're making. After that, then they start to see you. So the sight develops. In fact, children are able to see things at different frequencies which adults cannot. Just like dogs are able to hear things at different frequencies which human beings cannot. Like there's the dog whistle which the human being cannot hear, but a dog can. They work at different frequencies. Just like the Prophet ﷺ mentioned the adab of the qabr, where he mentioned that particular individuals in their grave were being punished, though nobody could hear their screams of the humans, he said the animals can. And that's why his his mount was moving at the time. That's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He has been the creator before all of this. So what we think is that the human being develops these things later on, then they diminish after. So you see older people, رَضَدْنَاهُ أَسْفَلَ سَافِرِينَ As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we return them to the lowest of the low. So there's this decline at the end of age for some people, except those who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protects. And we should actually always make a dua to Allah, that Allah may أَعُوذُ بِكَ مِنَ الْهَرَمِ with a small ha, haram, which means evil old age. Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min an uradda ila ardhalil umur. That I be returned to evil old age. That should be one of our du'as. We try to impute that on Allah, that how can He be the creator without having created creation? See, this is going into the realm of the relationship between His attributes and the effects of those attributes in the world. Let's put it this way. Take an alarm clock. This alarm clock has the ability to ring. That's how it's been manufactured. But it's not ringing right now. You've set it to ring at 5 o'clock in the morning, Fajr. So, though it has the ability and the potential to ring, it's not ringing yet. It has, there's a connection between its ability and the ring. But it's a, it, it's a connection that's not immediately materializing. You understand? At 5 o'clock when it starts ringing, there's a different association now between the clock. It's a materializing association. It's happening now. The ability that it had, the potential it had, now is being realized. So, for example, to say that a child has the ability to grow up and be a good scholar, and build or be a good builder or whatever you're saying, though he doesn't possess that ability then. It's only when he grows up, he gets strong enough and gets the right knowledge and expertise, then he'll be able to do those things. With Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's not like that. He's always been the way he is. He just decided to do something. And within that dimension that he created for the human being in which the human lives, and his entire world is, there's time and there's the past and there's the present and the future. That 
is something beyond. Allah is beyond that. It's just like we take a little capsule. Imagine an entire universe going on in there. And for them, time, etc. etc. We are so mighty compared to that. We can't even put that as an example with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah is way beyond. This is just a very limited example that we're giving of the relationship between things. See the hadith related by Imam Tabari mentions how the entire world, entire universe, is just like a ring thrown into the desert. I mean, how significant is that? I mean, it's completely insignificant. A little ring in the vast desert. You can hardly find it if you lost it. That's the relationship between this world and the kursi of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're talking about a very vast domain that is impossible for us to understand until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opens up any of these things in the hereafter for us. So he makes it very clear here that don't impute your human tendencies and things that you see in humans on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's your creator. مَا زَالَ بِصِفَاتِهِ قَدِيمًا قَبْلَ خَلْقِهِ لَمْ يَزْدَدْ بِكَوْنِهِمْ شَيْئًا لَمْ يَكُنْ قَبْلَهُمْ مِنْ صِفَتِهِ This is a very important point, point number 13. Just as he was possessed of his attributes prior to his creation, so he remains with the same attributes without increasing in them as a result of his creation coming into being. What that means is, just because his creation came into being now, it doesn't make him more of a creator than what he was already. He was already fully a creator before he even created. You know, you get somebody who brags around and I can do this, I can do this, never done anything. Some person in the community, I can do this, I can do that. Doesn't do anything. And then one day he goes out and he actually buys the M6. Alright? A BMW. He's been bragging about it from before, but he never got one. Everybody's saying, you know, he's irrelevant. Don't even listen to him. One day he gets it. But with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that was not the case. I mean, he always had the ability to do what he wanted. We've come into this kind of little dimension of time and start to think that, hey, Allah is in time as well. And that's where the problem is. So he said, Allah does not increase, and for that matter, does not even decrease. No resource of his diminishes by his creation of the creation. Reiterating that, he says, وَكَمَا كَانَ بِصِفَاتِهِ أَزَلِيًّا كَذَلِكَ لَا يَزَالُ عَلَيْهَا أَبَذِيًّا as he was before creation qualified with the specific attributes, so he remains forever described by them. So these attributes will always remain as well, and they will not diminish over time. They won't become prey to weakness, as does the human being sometimes. See, if he was to develop an attribute afterwards, that means he had shortcomings beforehand. And our belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that Allah has always been all-powerful and all-able all the way from the beginning, meaning from eternity. لَيْسَ مُنذُ خَلَقَ الْخَلْقَ إِسْتَفَادَ إِسْمَ الْخَالِقِ وَلَا بِإِحْدَاثِهِ الْبَرِيَّةِ إِسْتَفَادَ إِسْمَ الْبَارِيَّةِ There's going to be a number of points that will further emphasize this. <coughs> it is not after creating the universe that he merits the name, the Creator nor through originating his creatures that he merits the name the originator. Although it is when we begin to recognize him as such, because we weren't there before that. But he in himself, that's how he's always been. It is not after creating the universe that he merits the name of the creator, nor through originating his creatures that he merits the name the originator. 
لَهُ مَعْنَ الْرُبُوبِيَّةِ وَلَا مَرْبُوبِ وَمَعْنَ الْخَالِقِ وَلَا مَخْلُوقِ He possesses the quality of sovereignty with or without faith and the quality of creativity with or without creation. I think the way I would translate that is He possesses the quality of sovereignty, rububiyyah being the Rabb, the sovereign the one who looks after everybody else wala marbub without there being anyone to have sovereignty over marbub is the, the passive participle the one who is, uh, is supported and uh, taken care of by the sovereign likewise he had the he possessed the quality of creativity wala makhluk Whereas there was no creation yet. وَكَمَا أَنَّهُ مُحْيِي الْمَوْتَ بَعْدَ مَا أَحْيَى إِسْتَحَقَّ هَذَا الْإِسْمَ قَبْلَ إِحْيَائِهِمْ وَكَذَلِكَ إِسْتَحَقَّ إِسْمَ الْخَالِقِ قَبْلَ إِنْشَائِهِمْ And while he is the resurrector of the dead, after he resurrects them, he merits the same name before their actual resurrection. Likewise, he merits the name of the Creator before their actual creation. So after reiterating this quite a few times, he says, ذَلِكَ بِأَنَّهُ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٍ وَكُلُّ شَيْءٍ إِلَيْهِ فَقِيرٍ وَكُلُّ أَمْرٍ عَلَيْهِ يَسِيرٍ لَا يَحْتَاجُ إِلَى شَيْءٍ لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ وَهُوَ السَّمِيعُ الْبَصِيرِ This is because he is omnipotent, meaning he has power over all. Everything is dependent upon him. And every affair is effortless for him. He needs nothing, nothing, and there is nothing like him, yet he is the hearing and all-seeing. The one thing that this book does not do, which you may have noticed if you've read any other books on Aqidah, you can allow me to just sum up some of the books of Aqidah. Most of the older books, you can see how this development took place. Nowadays, we need things that are very, very particular, very categorized, speaking about one subject and then going on to the other. That's just the way how our minds work because that's just the way tradition is nowadays. When we read this, he is reiterating certain points. He doesn't in this book say, okay, fine, the essential attributes are this, this and that. The active attributes are this, that and the other. He doesn't make any lists of that nature. He's presenting the same points though using different words, different phraseology. He's not listing anything. Imam Abu Hanifa does a bit of listing where he talks about the essential attributes and the active attributes. But again, that's still very limited compared to some of the later books of Aqidah. For example, if you take the poem of Laqain, which is called Jawharat al Tawheed, and the many commentaries on that by Bajori and Sawi and others. If you take, for instance, Ummul Barahim, which is by Sanusi, these are some of the later Ash'ari texts. I have to say, when you compare texts of the Ash'aris and the Maturidis, the Ash'aris, I think they've developed the Sifat a lot more, the discussion on the Sifat a lot more detailed, a lot more categorized. They split them into you know, different categories and things. The older the text is, the less of this categorization that will take place. So this is a, quite an old text. That's why he doesn't really list the attributes but he's just mentioned quite a few of them already if you've noticed so what I'll do is I'll actually go through the various categorizations of attributes and how they relate to their effect and there's a discussion about that which needs to be understood as well 
Now let's understand this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has attributes. Open your minds for this. This needs to be understood, okay? You have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you have attributes. What is an attribute? Attribute is a quality. It's an ability. For example, you you have a human being and you have knowledge. The person is not knowledge, but the person is knowledgeable. Knowledge is the attribute, it's a sifa of the person. And being knowledgeable is a name that you give to them based on a quality that they have. Okay? So the difference between a sifa and an ism, a quality, an attribute, and a name, is that the sifa attribute is a quality of the individual, and the ism is the name that's given to that particular individual based on the qualities that they have. One thing is you have the attributes of Allah, like ilm, knowledge, hearing, seeing, power, and so on. And then you have the 99 names and more. So you have Allah as being the ghaffar and the qahar and so on. So now the difference between the two is that the attributes are qualities and attributes. The asma'ul husna, the beautiful names, they're the names that we give to Allah based on what we recognize of Him based on the attributes that He has. So you're only going to call somebody knowledgeable if they have knowledge. You're only going to call somebody generous if they have generosity. Generosity is the attribute and being generous or generous is the name. So when you put these various attributes together and you see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the power to avenge anybody, then he gets the name, the one who is able to avenge. When you've got his power, that he has control over everything, he's got his qudra, then he gets the name Qahar. Alright? When he's the one who provides, then he's the Razzaq. Alright? When he's the one who is able to forgive because he has ability to do what he wishes, then he's the Ghaffar. So all of these names, they come about based on the different attributes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has. Now how do the attributes, how can we get some understanding of the attributes? Now of course, when you're talking about the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's very difficult for us to understand the reality of it. Because it's something that's beyond us. But based on some of the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned, we can understand some things. For example, we know that Allah has attributes. Why do we know that? Because He Himself has called Himself Alim. Right? Alim, the all-knowing one. You can't be Alim without having knowledge. He's called Himself Samir. You can't be the listening one without having the ability to listen. Without having the attribute of listening, of hearing. He's called himself Basir, the seer, the all-seeing. You can't have that without the attribute of seeing. What does that prove? That proves that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has attributes. He doesn't say, I have ilm, I have knowledge, right? Or I have sight. Most of it is, I am seeing, or he is seeing, he is all knowledgeable. That became confusing to the Mu'tazila. The Mu'tazila said that Allah does not say that he has attributes, he's just saying that he's seeing, he's knowledgeable, and all-knowing, he is powerful. That means he is powerful, knowing, seeing, hearing through his essence. There's no attributes, it's just his essence, he is all of these things through his essence. That's what the Mu'tazila say. 
So basically what they're doing is they're rejecting the attributes. We are saying that no, he has attributes which are separate from his essence. Because an attribute is separate from the essence. For example, again, this is a very weak example, but it might give us an understanding of this relationship between an attribute and an essence. Somebody comes in the door, sheikh comes in the door, some doctor comes in the door, you're not going to say knowledge came in. If you said that, you said it metaphorically. Because what's come in is that particular doctor or the alim, he has the quality of knowledge. You can't say he's knowledgeable without him having the quality of knowledge. You can't say this is white if there was no whiteness in it. You can't say that this is black if there's no blackness in it. Mu'tazilite, for some reason, despite the rationalism that they had, they just couldn't get that. They said that he doesn't have any separate attributes. It's all in the self. And again, these examples that I'm giving, they're very weak examples just to give us some understanding of this relationship between the attributes and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His essence. See, another problem that they said they faced is that if we're going to consider these attributes to be separate and not part of His essence, then they would also have to be eternal. The question arises, are these attributes then eternal or are they creative? If you say they're creative, then that doesn't work. Even though Sunnah wal Jama'ah doesn't agree with that. If you have an attribute which is creative, you're linking that to an essence who is eternal, it becomes creative. That doesn't work. Allah can't have anything associated with Him that's created. So okay, we all agree it's not created. So then it has to be eternal. We believe it's eternal. Al-Sunnah al-Jama'ah believe it's eternal. The Mu'tazilite said that if we believe it's eternal, then it means we've got another entity that's also eternal. You're going to have a multiplicity of eternal beings. You're going to have many eternal beings and that's a problem. There can only be one eternal being. Did you follow that? They said that the attributes can't be separate because if it's separate, it'd have to either be created. If it's created, it's linked to Allah. It doesn't work because created linked to the eternal. It can't be eternal because then you have a multiplicity of eternal beings, too many eternal beings, and it can only be one eternal being. Ahl-Sunnah wa Jama'ah say, this is a dilemma. I'm sure this was not something that was asked during the term of Prophet but then when this issue came up, you had to say something and you had to provide the belief of the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah while keeping in check all of the other verses so that we don't blaspheme Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah said, look, we can't deny the attributes. There are attributes because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says He is Razik, He is powerful, He is all-hearing. You can't be that without an attribute. Okay, so we have to agree that he has attributes. The attributes are not him himself, as the Mu'tazilite finally said, that the attributes are just part of him. They're not attributes, they're just his hearing, etc., through his essence. We say no, they're, they're separate attributes. They're not Allah himself. Neither are they something completely separate, because if you say they're completely separate and they're eternal, linked to Allah, then it means there's a multiplicity of eternal beings. So then how do we deal with this? You see the dilemma? You've got some groups who are saying they're separate, multiplicity of eternal beings. Some groups who are saying no, there aren't any, it's just the essence itself is all hearing, etc. 
We're saying no, you have to establish attributes, but they can't be completely separate either. So what the Ahl-Sunnah wa Jama'ah say is that they are neither the essence itself, neither are they anything external or completely separate to the essence. It's this middle path that we have to go with because we don't know the reality. But this saves us from problematic belief. It saves us from saying that they're completely independent where you've got a multiplicity of eternal beings. And it saves us from saying that they're Allah's essence itself. It saves us from denying attributes which Allah has mentioned in the Quran. So they are neither His essence itself and neither are they completely separate to His essence. They've got a special relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that has been there from eternity. These attributes have been there from eternity and will remain for eternity. As I said, the example that I gave of the person with knowledge being called a knowledgeable person, knowledge is linked to the essence of that person. How do we define that? What exactly is that connection? It's very difficult to define. Although in the human being, this knowledge came about later on and can diminish, you forget. Whereas with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, those attributes are eternal by merit of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being eternal himself. So they don't have an independent existence. I hope that's clarified. Raise your hands if you didn't understand that. Without any shyness, without any embarrassment. Okay, good. Alhamdulillah. That's very good. It's about four people who didn't understand. That's fine. It's not a problem. I'll go over it again, inshallah, afterwards. And if you still don't understand, no problem. You can come and you can ask. I guess the question comes that do we have to be Ash'ari or Matri? This was a question that was asked. And I think this comes, do we have to know these things in such a complex way? You don't have to. This is not something that people are going to be asked about. And neither do you have to be Ash'ari or Maturi. The main thing is that you shouldn't have any deviant beliefs and you should have the beliefs of the Ahl-Sunnah al-Jama'ah that are necessary for everybody to have. Those things which are popularly known to be from the Ahl-Sunnah al-Jama'ah and are essential points that have been passed down generation after generation, the big salient points, that's what's necessary for people to know. But as soon as you get a doubt or a question that arises, some discussion comes up, then it becomes necessary for each individual to find out about that topic and to clarify for themselves what's the point of the Hussainu al-Jama'ah. Until they find out, they should take this thought in their minds that I believe in this the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants me to believe in. And then as soon as they clarify, they need to clarify. Delaying clarifying can take a person out of the fold of Islam. You know, delaying without excuse. And that's why we need ulama of theology and aqidah in our midst so that we have access to them. Because these questions are coming about a lot more than before. It's actually not very difficult, but because the first time you hear about these relationships, it gets a bit complicated. Now another thing about the attributes. Now that you've understood the nature of the attributes, it's a quality that's associated with Allah. That's being that's eternal by the fact that Allah is eternal. And they're everlasting by the fact that Allah is everlasting. So it's a special relationship. They're not completely separate from Him and neither are they His essence itself. Now each of the attributes, they have an association. When you see a person with knowledge, they're going to say something and say, MashaAllah, that's all knowledge coming from this person. So there's an effect of that person's knowledge. When you're able to hear something, there must be something that's able to be heard for our quality of being able to hear coming into effect. For me to be able to make something, the attribute, if I have the ability, the power to make something, and then when I actually make it, that's an effect of my making ability. 
You see that? You have an attribute, the ability, and you have the effect of that ability. Can you see those two things? For example, Allah had the ability to create. Khalq. Ability to create. What we see around us is the makhluk, is the created, it's the effect, the athar. The athar, the impression of that creating. And obviously there's an association between the two. Because they're not independent. And one thing is, you know the attributes of Allah, they're eternal. The effects, they're created. This entire world is created. But it was created through something that's eternal, the attributes, by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You see that? So make that clear. The attributes are eternal or created. And the effects are created. Right? You call this the sifa, the attribute, you call that the sifa, or the sifat in plural. The effect, you call that athar. And the link between the two is called the association or the ta'alluq. The ta'alluq. Association. The association in most of the attributes is also created. Not in all of them. The attribute just depends. Now let's take an attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and put this in perspective. Attribute of knowledge. Got the attribute of knowledge. Allah's knowledge is unlike our knowledge. Where we develop knowledge, where we develop understanding. Allah from eternity has known everything that is to be known, which basically means everything. Allah has known everything that is to be known, all the ma'lumat, all those things which are knowable, Allah has known from eternity. You've got the attribute of ilm, knowledge. You've got the ma'lumat, everything knowable, which includes all of us and everything, alright, from the first day to the last day, and everything beyond that as well. Because Allah's knowledge also expands the things which are not yet created, which will never be created. Allah's knowledge encompasses all of that in terms of the generals of it and the, and the particulars of the whole universals of it and the particulars of it. So you've got the ma'lumat or the ma'lum and you've got the ilm. You've got the association. Now tell me, is this association between the sifat of ilm and the ma'lum, is that attribute eternal or is it created? Who says it's eternal? Raise your hands. As I mentioned, the attributes are always eternal. Allah's attributes are all eternal. The effects are always created. The association between the two could be created or eternal, depending on the dynamics of things. Okay. So then I threw a question, which is that Allah's knowledge of ilm, and that He has known all things knowable from eternity. All of those things were in His knowledge from eternity. So now, is this association created or eternal? I guess I answered the question, but yes. It's eternal, right? Why? Can you imagine if we said it's created? That means, created means that something came up later on. Which would mean that he didn't have all of that knowledge, or some of that knowledge from before, and that was created later on. That association, his ilm has encompassed all things knowable from eternity. That means that... For ilm, there is no created association. It's all eternal association. 
You understand? Alhamdulillah. There's some attributes which have both associations. For example, let's say creating. That's the sifat of Allah. The makhluk that we see around us. That's been in existence and gone from this world and anything that's going to come afterwards. That's all the effect of Allah's khalq. So the attribute is called khalq and the effect, the impression is called makhluk. What's the association between these two? Is it created or eternal? You're both right. There's an eternal association and there's also a created association. The eternal association is what he's saying here. Allah was the creator before there was anything created. Which means he had the ability. There was an eternal association which you can call a potential, an ability that was always there. But when he chose to bring it into being, that's when the created association comes in. When he actually when it materializes. In Arabic that's called the Ta'alluq Tanjiziyun Hadith. Ta'allukun Tanjiziyun Hadithun. Ta'alluq association, Tanjiziyun, the thing which materializes something, it causes something to come into being. Hadithun created. It's the created effective association. This is a poor translation. And the first one where he had the ability to create everything, and in ilm he had that ta'alluq is called ta'allukun saluhiyun qadimun. Now, for those who don't understand Arabic or who are not as advanced in this, don't worry about it. It's not something you have to know. Alright, but I'm just giving this for the benefit of those who have studied something. It's called ta'allukun saluhiyun qadimun. Ta'alluq means association. Saluhi means potential ability. In the definite sense of it, not like, oh, this child has the ability to become a scholar, but, you know, he may never do. With Allah, it's, he has the ability and he can put it into action anytime. Saluhi and Qadim, eternal. So the eternal potential association. When you talk about, for example, seeing Allah's sight, which is, you know, without the need of any instruments or implements or anything like that. And the things which are seen or seeable. Same thing. Both associations are going to be in this attribute because he had the ability to see whatever he wanted to see and everything in fact. That's an eternal association. But then when the things came into being, then he's seeing them. Now let's look at the classification of the attributes. If you want to write these down, you can. In all, there's going to be about five different categories. Five different categories. There's some overlaps in some things. And there's some differences of opinions about another category. The first is the personal attributes. It's called sifa nafsiya or thubutiya, the personal attributes. The second one is called the sifat salbiya, which are the negating attributes. Negating or cancelling attributes. The reason they're called negating or cancelling attributes is because they negate the opposite of that regarding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Like for example, you take hayat, it negates the fact that there's death, right? So by negating the opposite, it's establishing it itself. So the first one is the personal attribute, the second one is the negating or cancelling attribute, the sifat salbiya, and the third are the sifat ma'ani, sifat ma'ani or wujudiya, there's two different names for them, which are the abstract or affirmative attributes. The abstract or affirmative attributes. Now, some of you may be sitting there and thinking that where does all this stuff come from? These categorizations did not exist during the time of the Prophet So where are you making all of this stuff up from? 
But basically, all of these attributes are from the Quran and the Sunnah. It's just that they weren't categorized. People just had that knowledge. There was no need to categorize and individually define and see this attribute, the function is this, and so on and so forth. So, it's not a bid'ah in that sense. The personal attribute of Allah is only one. The sifa nafsiya, the first one, is only one. That's wujud, being, right? To be, that Allah is. We don't need to go into this, but there is a difference of opinion among the scholars as to whether wujud is like an attribute that is an added description of the essence, or is it one and same as the essence? Regardless of all of that, it's his personal attribute. Allah is mawjood. Allah is existent. Allah is a being. Okay, the negating attributes. These are very important. Why are they call the negating attributes? Is because they negate the opposite of them from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The first one is called qidam, which is beginninglessness. What does that negate? That he had a beginning. He is beginningless. Number one, that's qidam, beginninglessness. Number two, baqa, endlessness or everlastingness. Instead of everlastingness, we translate it as endlessness is to show what it's negating. It's negating an end. Wahdaniya, number three, wahdaniya, which is oneness. That's negating a partner in anything. It's so negating any comparison with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number four is Qiyam bin Nafs, by which he becomes Qayyum. Okay, Allahu la ilaha illallah hayyul Qayyum. Qiyam bin Nafs, which means self-subsistence. That's negating that he needs someone else to subsist through. And number five is Mukhalafa lil Hawadith, which means absolute dissimilarity, absolute dissimilarity to anything. So negating a similarity okay this attribute negates a similarity now you should write these down you should ponder over them because it helps us to refine our understanding of our creator and help us with questions that may arise and help us to respond to things that we see around us so there's five qidam baqa which is basically beginninglessness endlessness wahdaniya oneness qiyam bin nafs self-subsistence and mukhalafah lil hawadith absolute dissimilarity to all things. You see, the wujud, if you look at it, everything is a negating factor, in a sense. Because when you establish something, you're obviously negating something else. So even wujud is a negating attribute in a sense, but it's so important, so essential, that's why they call it the essential attribute. Can you see that? Being. It negates the fact that he's not a being, that he's not existent. But that applies everywhere. gave that a special position of the personal attribute, because it's so important. These three categories they agreed upon, but there's not much difference of opinion about these. This third category is the ma'ani. These are called affirmative attributes. There's seven, there's seven of them. Number one, life, hayat. Number two, knowledge, ilm, ilm or knowledge. Number three, irada or will. Number four, qudra, power. Number five, sama, hearing. Number six, basar. Basar, basadra, which means sight. And number seven, kalam, speech. This is the most discussed attribute. 
of all of them. It was for a while. Kalam, speech. I'll just go through them again, just so that you can confirm what you have. Hayat or life. Ilm, knowledge. Irada, will. Qudra, power. Sama, hearing. Basar, sight. And kalam, speech. Now, look at these and look at the second category. You know these attributes? They're also negating. When you look at basar, sight, aren't they negating the fact that Allah cannot see? When you say hearing, isn't that negating the fact that He cannot hear? When you say ilm, it negates the fact that He is not knowing. So they're also negating attributes in a sense. So why are they called affirmative attributes? Look over those, look over the second category and let me know what you think the difference is. Raise your hands if you've come up with something. Sorry, are there like active attributes that describe an being that you can do this? Right, you're right there. Anybody has a more succinct way of saying it? I think what you're saying is correct. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, the first one in the dark of essence. The desert of power. Okay. Let me explain. Those which are purely negating attributes, there's no independent attribute there. Beginninglessness. There's no independent attribute there. Whereas when you look at ilm, yes, it is negating jahala or ignorance, but it's an independent attribute. It's something that's a quality that's separate. You know what I'm saying? So it's not part of the essence. It's not just the nature of the essence we're talking about. It's something that's different. You know, that's where the whole thing comes in. Is it the essence itself or is it not the essence? You know, we're saying it's not the essence itself. Now, is it other than the essence? Right? So that's what the difference is. Though all of them do negate, obviously. Okay, these three are agreed upon. Now, there's a fourth set which is of contention between the Ash'aris and the Maturidis. They're called the active attributes. Sifat Fi'liyah. Imam Abu Hanifa mentions them in his Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar. There's quite a few, but the main ones are here. Actually, there's only one. There's one which is, you can say, the collective active attribute. It's called Taqween. Taqween. There's a major difference of opinion about Taqween between the Ash'aris and the Maturidis. Ash'aris say that the queen is not an independent attribute, it's just an association of power, the attribute of power. So they're saying there's no such thing as the queen, it's just power. When that's used to give somebody provision, it's called tarzik. When it's used to create something, it's called takhliq. It's the name of the attributes depending on what the effect is going to be. There's no independent attribute. The maturidis say no, it's an independent attribute. It's called the queen. Now underneath there, the manifestations of it are creating or takhliq, creating takhliq, sustaining or tarzik from risk, tarzik, sustaining, bringing into being, insha, insha, which means to bring into being. Then you've got ibda, which means to originate. And then you've got sun, which means to make. And you've got a number of others like Ihya to give life, Imata to give death, Imbat to cause growth, Inma to develop, Taswir to shape, Takhliq to create, and so on and so forth. 
very similar some of those are but one kind of means to bring into being without any previous example one means to bring something different into being one means to bring something that was existent before into being according to a previous model there's these different things these all come under the similar taqween taqween means to bring into being so when you're sustaining someone you bring into being the sustenance the death of somebody the life of somebody so all comes under taqween ash'ari say that this is not an independent attribute this is just association of the qudra when it's takhliq when it's creating something it's called takhliq when it's growing something it's called imbat when it's providing something it's called tarziq we're saying no, these are attributes. The Maturidi say these are attributes. According to some it's a semantic difference, according to others it's a real difference. But it's not one it's not one that leads to deviance at all because what the effect of that is, nobody's gonna negate the fact that Allah is in control of everything. It's just is this a separate attribute or is it part of Qudra? That was four categories, okay? So three were agreed upon. One was difference of opinion and then I've got a fourth one which not everybody kind of agrees it's kind of an addition a follow-up of the third category this fifth category is called the sifat ma'nawiya they're very simple actually you know when you take life life is a quality is an attribute what are you going to call someone with that? the living so Allah's being the living one ilm Allah's being the knowledgeable one. These are all what you call the sifat ma'nawi or the entitative attributes. Entitative attributes. They're as accurate as you could probably get them in English. Because uh, sifat ma'nawiyah, something that has this ma'na. They're basically active participles of the third category. Allah being the ever-living, being the all-knowing, being the all-willing, being the almighty, being the all-hearing, being the all-seeing, being the, the speaker. Basically being the Hay, Alim, Murid, Qadir, Sameer, Basir, and Mutakallim. So when you take out the Queen, the fourth category, where there's a difference of opinion between the Maturidis and the Sharis, you count the rest of them, how many do they come to? Essential attribute you have, one. Negating attributes you have five, that's six altogether. Then you have seven of the affirmative attributes, seven plus. That's 13. And then if you go with the fifth category, which is basically the active participles of the third one, that's another seven, that would be 20. So when you hear about 20 attributes of Allah, that's the way it's going to be. You know when you read different works and it says Allah has 20 attributes, that's the way they're going to get it to 20. Because normally it's Ash'ari works that will mention that. That's why you have 20. They don't have the active attributes, which is the queen and the others. Because they just consider that to be under Qudra. Again, what's important here is that we recognize that Allah has all of these abilities and that He's always had them. And all of these are mentioned in the Quran in one way or the other. It's just the scholars have later categorized them this way. If you can't remember the categorization, as long as you've got the ideas correct, that's what's most important. Having said that, I'm going to now take some of these questions because I think these attributes and that do need some kind of tapering down, some kind of understanding. But we'll carry on the rest of the points. Basically, in the next points, he's going to now show how these attributes are manifested, the different things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does, puts all of that in perspective. And he's going to talk about uh, the will of Allah 
and the human will and things of that nature. Inshallah, we'll cover that. But let me just take some of these questions that we have here. Okay, I think some of these are clarification questions. The three stages that were mentioned in the beginning, wajibul wujud or necessarily existent, mustahilul wujud or impossibly existent or impossible existence. And the third one, what was the third one in Arabic? Mumkinul wujud. Mumkinul wujud or possible existence. Point six, he neither perishes nor ceases to exist. How can we explain that to non-Muslims? I'm not sure really because it just depends on what kind of confusion that the non-Muslim has. Right? Because not all non-Muslims are going to have the same kind of confusion about something. I mean, I'm sure a lot of them won't even reject that. As far as I understand, the Christians and the Jews, they believe that Allah is forever. As far as I understand. So, I would assume that it's quite simple unless there's a particular type of confusion that somebody has, which is some question I can actually write that down and send that forward and take that. Would you say, therefore, that the Mu'tazila, Jabariya, Khawarij, etc. kafir? It's a very good question. We won't say that just off the back like that. The ulama have never done that. The majority of the ulama have never done that. There's another question that relates to that as well. What we do say is that anybody who holds this particular belief, and you mentioned the belief, that if anybody says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a body, for instance, they're going to be a kafir. See, the dilemma that the Mu'tazilite had of rejecting these attributes was a sincere dilemma that they had. It's not something that they've done out of kind of selfishness or conspiracy. This was a genuine dilemma that they had because of the rationalism that they followed. So we're going to call that an innovation in religion. It's a bid'ah in aqidah. Bid'ah in aqidah. We normally attribute bid'ah to actions only. But this is bid'ah in aqidah where you believe in something that's off the mainstream. The ulama have not considered the Mu'tazilite kafir based on these things. There are some groups who they called kafir because they believed in things you know, like the Qarramiyyah, believed in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually having a body touching the throne, etc., etc. That's a serious problem. But these are deviancies. And the hadith which talks about the 73 sects and only one, the other, the only one being the saved sect and the rest of them going in the fire, it doesn't mean that they'll be in hellfire forever. What it means is that they are worthy of the fire because of their deviance. If Allah wants to forgive, if Allah wants to do whatever, that's fine. And they will eventually come into paradise unless they have really extreme beliefs. Those 73, you see the Prophet ﷺ, my ummah will split into 73 sects. This is not even taking into consideration others necessarily according to the one understanding of it. So it's a deviance, it's an innovation, it's a problem, but we'll only say it's kufr if it's really extreme. Another thing that happens is that you have followers of certain groups and people like to consider the entire group to be kafir and that's very wrong. Some groups like the Qadianis are primarily, that's, that is the case with them. But when you have other groups that are beyond them, like some Shias are not kafir at all. There's some Shias, the Zaydiyya, who just consider Ali radiallahu anhu to be superior but do not criticize or condemn or swear at Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhu. They're very close to the Sunnis in that regard. So we can't give a blanket statement, especially when it's just some random follower. There's an entire section about takfir in the Fiqh al-Akbar, if you get a copy. They said that we're not going to do takfir of anybody, even if you hear some things about them, unless we bring them over and we ask them, is this what you mean? Is this what you mean? And they blatantly say what they're saying explicitly, then only can we pass that. Because it's a very serious problem. It's a very serious issue. The hadith mentioned that when you do takfir of somebody, 
this title, kafir, pretend it's got a physical form. It takes off. It goes to that person who is addressed to. If it finds that that person is worthy of this title, then it settles on it, then it's all fine. But if that person is not according to Allah kafir, then it comes back and tries to find somewhere to settle. It finally comes back and settles on the person that sent it. So they get the sin of it. It's a very, very serious issue. The uh, ulama mentioned that we'll try to have 99 interpretations before we finally declare somebody to be kafir. Ibn Hajar al-Haythami mentions that لازم المذهب ليس بمذهب which basically means that the implication of somebody's ideology the implication of somebody's ideology is not necessarily their belief so you may say something and it insinuates something it implies something that thing you have to ask them do you actually believe this? you have to be extremely careful about this and that's why the ulama never called the mu'tas like kafir just right off the back and that's actually the standard of any any um, group which is on the haq is that they're very careful about calling others kafir. Very careful. That's why you have extremes. You have some Salafis who call some Sufis kafir, and you have some Sufis who call some Salafis kafir. And that's actually two extremes. And you need to be in between. So it's a deviance and it's punishable by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I didn't understand exactly the term ilm al-kalam what it means. Ilmul Kalam is just a name given to this subject, theology. It has a negative aspect when it goes into the hair-splitting debates and becomes polemics, polemical theology. That's also called Ilmul Kalam. So that's why when you get the scholars saying, a person who delves into Kalam, take him, you should put him backwards on a donkey and parade him through and throw stones at him. That's talking about those who are wasting their time going into hair-splitting debates. But if you're just generally trying to understand your deen at an advanced level, then that's praiseworthy Kalam. If you still want to call it Kalam. I didn't understand the difference between the Maturidis and the Ash'aris in any. Well, the difference between the two, as I mentioned, is basically methodology. But again, there's not that many differences. And I just highlighted one of the differences, so that should explain a bit more. They were from different areas, they were working for the same goal, their conclusions were primarily you know, the same. Some things they differed in terms of some minor peripheral issues. Why did Allah create human beings when He had no need for them? I think I tried to explain that already. Allah knows best. But one of the wisdoms is obviously so that he can reward us in, in paradise and that he be recognized by his creation without him needing to be recognized. I mean, I think we could probably spend hours discussing that aspect and the benefits of the, the creation. Why not create humans just to please Allah and not to give choice? That's something Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to do. He wanted to test you because if he just created everybody and sent them all to paradise just like that, there'd be no distinction. There'd be no special category. Here he made paradise something that we become entitled to by our hard work. Different stages in paradise and unfortunately some people won't go to paradise. So this was a test that he gave the human beings so that they could be thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for what he's given to them. If everybody's got the same, there's no opposites, there's no difference and there's no distinction, then how are you going to be thankful? Again you could say, well Allah could have done it that way. Allah is not asked about why he does what he does. Is it wrong to question where is Allah? The question in itself, is it wrong? It is in a sense because when you have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, where means which place is he in? When Allah is the creator of place, how can that question be attributed to him? 
We will talk about that a bit more when it comes. Imam Tahawi will talk about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being transcendent of all directions and positions, of physical position and so on. We'll talk about it a bit more, but yes, in a sense, it is a wrong question. What was the aqidah of the salaf before Imam Ash'ari? Or is it necessary to follow one of the two schools you mentioned, Ash'ari Maturi? As I told you, all what Ash'ari Maturi did was take the mainstream beliefs, kind of codify them, and lay them out in one organized way. That's basically all the ulama had the core fundamental beliefs. Some of these later categorizations are new because they weren't required before. So for example, for the Mu'tazila, there was no need to actually really understand how the attributes relate to Allah. We believe that Allah is Sameer Basir. That was all that was necessary. So these things are answers to the challenges of the time. And yes, you don't have to be Ash'ari or Maturidi as long as you don't have any deviant beliefs and you have a good source of your knowledge. A lot of people are Ash'ari or Maturidi all their life because that's the orthodoxy, but they don't have to know that. So you don't have to be Ash'ari or Maturidi, but you can't be anything else. Meaning you can't be sectarian, that's what I'm talking about. You can't be deviant. This question was answered by Tahawi. Is Allah's attributes always at the same level, even before need? Example, Qayyum before creation. Absolutely, we, you know, he went on about that and he spoke about that quite a bit. Time is a creation of Allah that does not apply to Allah but does apply to the creation. Is this correct? Absolutely. It is said that no eye has seen Jannah. How about Elias salam? What I mentioned is that for us, that's the description of paradise. The Prophet was shown paradise. Alright? Was shown paradise in that dimension. There's a difference of opinion about Ilyas salam, but the fact is that the Prophet was taken on toward paradise and hell. What's the difference between the Aqidah of Ibn Taymiyyah and Imam Tahawi? Actually there's quite a bit of difference. Ibn Taymiyyah had wrote a number of books on Aqidah. Aqidah Tadmuriyah, Hamawiyyah, Wasitiyyah, Wasitiyyah I think is the last one. And there's differences in all of them. He was condemned, he was taken to task for a number of things that he said and that were attributed to him. He was actually imprisoned finally. For that, I mean, in terms of when it comes to fiqh and those things, he was just um, outstanding. When it came to aqidah, unfortunately, there were scholars have mentioned, like Subki and others have mentioned that there were many issues. For example, his belief, which is quite documented, that he thinks hellfire will eventually come to an end with all of its inhabitants. So that's the primary difference. Tahawi's aqidah is accepted by all. Ibn Taymiyyah's aqidah and his books are not. They're, they're only approved by a select few, and that's also more recently. Tahawiya has stood the test of time for a lot longer, and even those who follow Ibn Taymiyyah's Aqidah agree with Tahawiya's Aqidah. So I would not go to Ibn Taymiyyah's Aqidah, I would go to Tahawiya. Unless a person is like a master of Aqidah and wants to just study other things, and that's different. Referring to Allah being one without any partner, how could you answer the question, can Allah create a stone he himself can't lift? That defies the purpose, that defies the essence of Allah, that defies the nature of Allah. Because He's able to do anything He wants. I mean, this is a silly thing to say anyway, and Allah doesn't do stupid things. These kind of questions are absurdities, they should not be entertained by our mind because they're absurdities. Because they defy the actual nature of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being the all-powerful. Right? Why would He go and do something like that? Even hypothetically speaking, it's just a wrong kind of question to bring up. And Allah forgive us. Allah is above the throne. One of Allah's names means all-encompassing. What does this mean? All-encompassing in knowledge, all-encompassing in sight, all-encompassing in ability and power. There's many things that all-encompassing could mean. 
A bit of a strange question. Assalamu alaikum. Point 13 refers to his creation. Please explain what the author means by this. Is this a mistake? Allah is not created. I can see how that mistake may come about, but it's actually a misunderstanding. Just as he was possessed of his attributes prior to his creation, doesn't mean to his himself being created. La hawla wa la illa billah. That's not what it means. Prior to his creation, yani us. Prior to him creating the creation. Okay, just in case anybody else thought that, that's an important clarification actually. So just as he was possessed of his attributes prior to his creating whatever, his creation, his creating his creation may, may have helped. Can Allah be referenced to somebody in terms of one or more being a body? If I understand what this is saying, you can't call Allah somebody, we should avoid that word. I have studied that Ibn Taymiyyah and Umar both believed hell would eventually come to cease to exist. Is it not okay to follow any of these opinions? Because any scholar will be rewarded. One reward if he's wrong, and if he's right, then he'll get two rewards. A good question. But the thing is that that's related to fiqh and jurisprudence. You can't mess with aqidah. You can't mess with aqidah. I mean, that you don't do ishtihad in aqidah. Especially when you're going against the majority, as though the majority misunderstood something. I mean, that is a serious problem. About Umar saying the same thing, I've never heard it. Alright? Not that I've heard everything, but I've never heard it. If that can be brought from a substantial source, then you know maybe we can respond to that. But I'm not going to respond to something which I don't think Umar will go that far and say something like that. I mean, even Albani completely condemns that idea. He completely puts that opinion down. Reason. The interplay of reason with our deen. As I mentioned, the Mu'tazilites, they believe that reason stands alone, can impute things on Allah. We say that no, Allah provides the reasoning with some knowledge and some perceptions to recognize Him and to learn His being. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا كُنَّا مُعَذِّبِينَ حَتَّى نَبْعَثَ رَسُولًا We're not going to punish until we send a prophet, a messenger. So now, there's a difference of opinion between the Maturidis and the Ash'aris. The Maturidis, because Imam Abu Hanifa took this verse differently. And as I mentioned, the Maturidi Madhab is actually an inheritance of the research of Abu Hanifa. Rahimahullah. So, Imam Abu Hanifa's opinion was that this verse, that we're not going to punish until we send a messenger, refers to, there's different explanations given, but he says that this means beyond recognizing the oneness of the Creator. So like you don't have to pray, you don't have to fast. Meaning a person from an indigenous tribe somewhere that has no exposure to modern civilization or any civilization, any other civilization for that matter. So no message of the Quran or the Prophet of the time has reached that they're completely closed off and isolated. It's not re- their responsibility is not to you know do the other things which are only given by Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala through the prophets and through prophecy. But Imam Abu Hanifa says that it is essential for every single human being, because of the intellect and reasoning Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala has given them, to recognize the Creator, because that's something that has been programmed into their reasoning, into the mind. So there's no way that they'd be forgiven for not recognizing one creator, whatever they call him. 
I mean, you understand the wisdom of this when many people were discovered for the first time their exposure to others they came up believing in certain supreme beings Imam Hanifah says it's necessary for the aql to believe in the oneness of Allah because that much has been programmed into the aql if we can call it that the Ash'aris they say no this verse is more absolute وَمَا كُنَّا مُعَذِّبِينَ حَتَّى نَبْعَثَ رَسُولًا we're not going to punish even for shirk even for taking on others with Allah because that's not their responsibility if the message has not reached them so it becomes very easy for them to deal with the issue of the parents of the Prophet what is going to happen to them there's a bit of a difference of opinion there the Ash'aris very clearly say that Allah will deal with them they will be saved because they were not responsible there was no prophet of the time because Isa was before the Prophet and there was no prophets in between there were some remnants of the Abrahamic faith in Arabia but that was about it, it was very corrupted the Maturidis have a harder time in dealing with that question there's a whole discussion about it in the Fiqh Al-Akbar best thing is to leave it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and incline to the best opinion why is it wrong specifically with some groups who say that Allah has a body but not in any way we can understand a body to be Ibn Taymiyyah actually said this the problem is that even Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal has rejected that idea body is a jism a jism is actually made up of substance and it's divisible Allah is beyond all of these things and nowhere does it mention in the sacred sources that Allah has a jism and that's why it's so problematic that's a blasphemy, that's serious to say that Allah has a body because when you say body you're immediately insinuating or stating many things because a body is a specific thing which is divisible, which is compound, it's substance, it has accident and Allah is beyond all of these things.